This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Bell Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal and Wongal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land, and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. How happy some or other some can be. Through Athens, I am thought as fair as she. But what of that? Demetrius thinks not so. He will not know what all but he do know. And as he errs, doting on Hermia's eyes, so I, admiring of his qualities. Things base and vile, holding no quantity, love can transpose to form and dignity. Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind, and therefore is winged Cupid painted blind. Nor have love's mind of any judgment taste, wings and no eyes, figure unheedy haste. For ere Demetrius looked on Hermia's eye, he hailed down oaths that he was only mine. And when this hail some heat from Hermia felt, so he dissolved, and showers of oaths did melt. I will go tell him of fair Hermia's flight. Well, then to the wood will he tomorrow night pursue her. And for this intelligence, if I have thanks, it is a dear expense. But herein mean I to enrich my pain, to have his sight thither and back again. Welcome to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was Helena from the first scene of A Midsummer Night's Dream, read by our guest this week. She is a NIDA graduate who has since studied in New York with the Atlantic Theatre Company and the Upright Citizens Brigade. She's a three-time Sydney Theatre Award nominee and was cast this year as Helena in Bell Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. Her previous theatre credits include The Apologists at Omnibus Theatre in London, E-Baby and Blood Bank for the Ensemble, Stop Kiss at ATYP, The Village Bike at the Old Fitz, and The Sound of Waiting for Darlinghurst Theatre. Her TV credits include The Killing Field, Dr Blake Mysteries, Deadly Women, and the ABC's Fresh Blood. She's the host of the popular podcast Back From Reality, about the world of reality TV. It is my great pleasure to welcome Gabrielle Scorthorne. Gab, welcome to Speak the Speech. Thank you for having me. It's... I'm terrified. Oh, Gab, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have recorded yourself 26 episodes of a podcast, which I, which I want to talk to you about later. It's fascinating. But first of all, to Helena, and I'm mm. so thrilled that this is your first Bell Shakespeare production on hiatus at the moment because of the <laughs> outbreak of the Delta um, variant of, of COVID, unfortunately. But you've had an amazing opportunity to delve into Helena. What have you found? Do you know, I think I'm so lucky with Helena because she is so clear in what she wants. Hmm. The language is so clear. You know, whenever I've been lucky enough to have a, a voice session with Jess or, you know, a kind of individual session, they'll go, do you want to unpack anything? I'm like, no, she's pretty direct in what she wants. <laughs> yeah. like, so what does she want in this speech? Well... 
This is the first time in the show as well that someone just turns to the audience and kind of says, can I level with you? Mm-hmm. You know, like it's the first time. We, yep. we The whole play is kind of in the scene and then she turns out and she's like, okay, guys, I need your help. What's going on? Like <laughs> what is going on? Because she's just come in and kind of said to her best mate, Hermia, um, how are you bewitching the man that I'm in love with? What are you doing? And she's just kind of said, nothing. I'm just me. And he loves it. And then she says, and P.S. I'm running away and I'm never going to see you again. And she just kind of has to turn to the audience and say, okay, I just need to kind of recap with you. Um, Because it's great. It's like it's it's exposition, but it's so present Mm. because she's figuring it out with the audience. And, And it has like the most important thing the bit of information for me that's really important to get across as his character is he he has already given me oaths. He's yeah. said that he loves me. He did, I'm he not mm. I'm not a crazy woman kind of running around wishing for some unrequited love. Mm. I'm just asking where did it go? Yeah. Because yeah. I'm now left here after he completely bewitched me mm. and I don't know where it's gone. So there's a little bit of blame here for Demetrius. I mean, you know, he doesn't come out too well in this speech when, when you talk when you talk about things base and vile. You know, I think you've got Demetrius in mind, but also Hermia. You, I, I think Helena blames Hermia blames Hermia in this as well, right? Yeah, I think there's um, a little bit of you know they've been friends for a very long time, and mm. I think you know there are some there are some people that can just make men fall in love with them with the slightest smile and I think she's seen it happen a thousand times and now she's on the other end of that. So do you, know? you blame do do you do you think that Hermia has had something to do with this? That she's seen, oh there's a boy who likes Helena. Let me see if I can uh, get him to like me as well. I think in her darkest moments, yes. <laughs> I think when she's really at the bottom of the pool, that's exactly what she thinks. But I think she's seen it happen a bunch of times before and she just wants... Because there's no other other reason that she can think of because he was so there with me Mm. a little while ago and all Mm -hmm. of a sudden that's just gone and where, where does that go? Yeah. And also at the beginning of the speech, she says, through Athens, I am thought as fair as she. Everyone thinks I'm as good as Hermia. It's only Demetrius who was suddenly turned and, and has, has turned on me. And it's funny because this comes up in, the, in this play quite a lot, that in order for one of the characters to switch their love from one to another, they have to absolutely loathe and hate the original. Why is that? Well... It's that thing, isn't it, that you need to convince yourself that you're right. I think Mm. we do it a lot as humans and Mm. so we go all in on our decision Mm. and therefore we need to convince ourselves that every other decision that we made before then was wrong Mm. Mm. (laughs) and and Mm. it wasn't right and I'm doing the right thing now, Mm. uh, which I think is super present in this play. And Mm. I think, you know, that, that kind of speaks to the young nature of yeah. it as well. You know, I can remember when I became a Hanson fan instead of a Spice Girls fan. And right I just on. kind of said, the Spice Girls are dead to me. <laughs> you know? <laughs> we're, ta- we're tackling the real issues now. I'm sorry I, I went so deep so quick. I, I, 
Hanson over Spice Girls. First of all, I think that's really controversial. <laughs> Come on, I don't. I don't think that decision has uh, has aged well, particularly. <laughs> I think I think the Spice Girls have a real retro charm to them. Hanson, not so much. Um, look, yeah, what what about this decision for for Helena at the end of the speech? Uh, where she says, you know, I'm going to tell him of fair Hermia's flight. What is she thinking? What What is this plan? It's bonkers, isn't it? But if it doesn't happen, the play doesn't happen. I think it is just because, and what she is doing is she's selling out her best friend. Like, let's not, yeah. let's not forget that in making this decision, she is going to sell out her best friend is, who is trying to run away and elope. Yeah. Um, but it's that thing of, oh, gosh, I could spend another few hours with this person. And if I have those few hours, I might be able to convince him that he's still in love with me. If, mm. you know, every minute that we have together, there is a possibility. Yeah. yeah. And I think that she just is clinging to hope and possibility and she will have that in these to have his sight thither and back again, you know, mm. into mm. the wood and back. I just, yeah. So why does she put herself at risk like that? Because the next time we see Helena and Demetrius, she is chasing him in the wood. He says some quite threatening and awful things to her, but she's not deterred. Why does she keep going, do you think? Do you know, I'm playing with this thing at the moment of uh, she knows Demetrius better than he knows himself. Yeah, right. Yep. And so it's this unshakable belief that what they had was real. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, can be perceived in a number of different ways from people watching. But to her, it's just a constant kind of, you don't mean that. Come back to me. Mm, Come mm. back to me. Yeah, yeah, which, of course, eventually he does. Although, under the spell of Puck's uh, Nobron's magic flower, so that's another question for the end of the play, is Demetrius still under under the spell of the flower? Yeah, but you know what I've... Because the the fairy land, you know, they play with time. Mm. So, you know, time is is not relative to them. And so I've always kind of thought as the potions and the spells, as just their ability to play with time. So I Mm. see the spells as a maturing, as like a Mm -hmm. coming into natural taste as Demetrius says, I've aged and I've decided. So I, I always think of the the spells and potions just as maturing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so this acceleration of time Mm. um that leads him to the right answer yeah yeah (laughs) yeah of course but what do you make of this language along the way that helena uses like i am your spaniel you know um use me spurn me use me as you use your spaniel it's really demeaning why does she use words like that well i mean i think she's incredibly aware of what this scene looks like she is following a man around like a like a loyal companion like yeah. a dog beside him and mm. she's incredibly self-aware and I, I I know that I've spoken to some women who, when they when they heard I was playing this role, they said, oh, how are you doing this line? And I just thought, I'm doing it how it's intended to be done. Mm. Um, and she is saying, I know that you're treating me terribly and I'm okay with that because in the end, I'm going to be your best friend. You know, yeah. I am going to be, yeah. uh, going to be the one that you go with. And I think she's just declaring, like, I'm aware of how you're treating me and I'm I'm here, I'm still here and I will always be here. 
This is it's extraordinary, and again we see the young women more mature than the young men in these scenarios, almost teaching them how to love, teaching them how to be human beings, how to be good companions, and she does in the end, of course, uh, right at the end of the play. He is a completely different person, and his language is completely different. It's not violent. It's it's absolutely inclusive and loving. Yeah, and, you know, it's funny, just as you were saying that, I have had the completely, in my own personal life, I have had the complete opposite of that, of, like, my husband taught me mm-hmm. how to be a much better person than, okay. I, than I was. But yeah. it's so funny. Everything you just said has literally happened to me in my life. He taught me how to communicate better without just making everything a fight and Mm. um Mm. so it's funny I've had the exact reverse wow (laughs) that's brilliant that's excellent but Helena and Hermia having grown up together as kids Mm. at school they have a long long history together and often you find there's a there's a trope and you know and it happens you know in reality tv as well where where the the two women are pitted against each other Two, two women are inevitably set up to fight each other, to argue they can't be friends, they can't get along. It feels like a misogynistic trope in literature, in drama, all the way up to reality TV. What do you make of that relationship between Helena and Hermia? I am always fascinated by how close female friendships can get. I think I, I do... And I can only speak from my perspective because I've never had a a deep male-to-male friendship, but I think women do quite quickly become sisters. And sisters, all, you know, all the rules go out the window. And so you do say things to each other that you might not normally say Mm. to anyone else. Um, So I think that there is that, that element of just extreme closeness can lead to friction. However, I'm really, I think, especially in this production as well, we are aware of the trope um, and there is some kind of reconciliation, I guess, to yeah, in the end. Of course, yeah. But it's also a part of nature that you can't kind of shy away from as well. So Love, obviously, a huge theme in this play. And it seems like a play populated by if not teenagers, teenage acting people, even the fairies, you know, um, Titania and Oberon act like impulsive teenagers. And in this speech, Helena says that love is blind. Look, this is why Cupid's painted blind, because love has no judgment. Love doesn't know where it's going to land. So it feels like love drives the chaos of this play. Is that an accurate assessment, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a real kind of gift to an actor as well to kind of go, there's no logic anymore. Mm. (laughs) You know, I give you complete permission Mm -hmm. to just let your passion drive every single scene. Yes. Um, Mm. And and I think it's kind of setting that up for the audience. And I think she is also kind of excusing what she's about to do, you know. Right, It's going to say, I'm acting from here Mm -hmm. and there's Mm -hmm. no, there's going to be no rhyme or reason to what I will do in the next Yeah. Hour 45, I can assure you. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And then certainly when you get to that really famous scene, I think one of the greatest scenes in theatre ever written, that what Mm. actors call the four-hander, where Mm. uh, the two boys, Lysander and Demetrius, are under the spell. They fall in love with Helena. Helena all thinks it's all a trick uh, to tease her. She turns on Hermia. Hermia thinks that Helena's stolen Lysander from her. 
uh, hijinks ensue. Now, how do you approach a massive scene like that that has so many moving parts? It's got you know a fight in the middle of it. It's got uh, language that you don't hear anywhere else in the play. It's short and sharp, but it's also a long and sustained scene. It's got a lot of turning points. How do you approach a scene like that? I mean, like anything, you focus on the part that's moving at the time. So yeah. you just take it one step at a time. I think, you know, there's that really famous acting quote. Is it Al Pacino who kind of says, you know, see how, I, I dare you to see how small you can make something on stage. Right. Okay. I don't follow that at all in this <laughs> in this scene. No, because there is, you know, um, Hermia has that line, something about, you know, oh, gosh, you, you, your passionate words. And I say, yeah, she's going to be as passionate as she's ever been in her life. <laughs> it's this, because also she's never spoken for that long to mm. two characters in the play. She mm. has spoken to the audience for yeah. a very long time. But actually, so that kind of says to me that she's actually quite an internal person because she's yeah. talking to the audience all the yeah, time. Yeah. She's not talking yeah. to people. But in this moment, mm. she says enough is enough right. and it's all coming out and there's some pretty bold offers being made yeah (laughs) and she's got all three people you know all of the the little parts of this kind of love square Mm. that they're having Mm. they're all finally in the one place because we've all been in different places but now they're all here and she's like right we're gonna get this straightened out because i'm not leaving this wood until it's sorted Mm. you know Mm. i think it's fantastic but then here's what happened (laughs) you were going to tech in orange had to cancel that griffith cancelled wagga cancelled you're going to go to melbourne that's been postponed to the end of the year hopefully you'll be able to go there at some point Perth, off, Albany and Bunbury, no. It, it's, it is really hard because I don't think any of us have ever done a show where you tech the show, you rehearse it, you get the dress rehearsal done and you're ready to go and you're ready for that first preview audience and then it's like, okay, off you go, go home. What happened that afternoon when everyone just went home, there was no audience and no prospect of an audience. It is the strangest situation I've ever been in. You know, I had two shows cancelled last year, but Mm. we didn't get to the point of tech. And I think for anyone who's been through a tech, you really, that's when everything kind of comes together. And so you have this finished product and then you need the release of showing that product to someone to make it real. That's right. Because it's that confirmation of this is real. Mm. I think especially for a comedy. You know, yeah. I think I think oh, gosh, that yeah. a comedy is is totally 50-50. It is 50% what's happening on stage, 50% what's happening in the audience. And so there is such an exchange there. Weirdly, if I could be a professional rehearser, I would be. I, I actually, I have, no, I have worked out later in life. I hate performing. I, I actually don't. Gabrielle. Re- I don't. I don't really like it that much. I love rehearsing and figuring out what a show is. So, you know, from that point, it's like, I've had a great time. Um, but you love, but you love an, or Gabrielle, you're, you're very, <laughs> you're, you're a funny person and a funny person needs an audience 
to laugh. I mean, what 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 is theatre without an audience? What is it? I, I don't know. I know it's just touching yourself in a in a dark room. You know, it's not <laughs> if you don't have an audience. As I said, it doesn't make it real. It actually doesn't make what you're doing real. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, uh, I, I really hope that you can get this production going. How are you and the cast keeping your spirits up? How are you? staying connected with each other while you're in lockdown in Sydney and, and some of you back in Melbourne? We are doing uh, Zoom warm-ups every morning. Oh, every morning. Nice. Yes, we okay, have. Good. It was three days a week, but we've changed to every morning now. Um, but, you know, the really difficult thing about this is it's a very physical show. Mm, you mm. Know, it's incredibly physical and there's a lot of intricate choreographed moments Um that you need the size of a stage for as well. So that's interesting. I, I don't know how you tackle that. I don't. Mm. But we are no, – and do you know what? No one knows how you tackle what's going on right now. So we're just doing our best. We're doing lines, runs. We're trying to play – we're trying to take the scenes apart just with the language, yeah, with, yeah, you know, yeah. little kind of rehearsal sessions where we can just kind of unpick anything that we're not sure of. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we're just, you know, getting the bants going on a WhatsApp chat. That's okay. <laughs> You're listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm James Evans, and my guest today is Gab Scorthorn. Gab, you grew up in Ipswich, about an hour out of Brizzy. Mm. Not renowned for its Shakespeare um, <laughs> history. However, uh, you went to a great school, as I heard on uh, I heard an episode of, of your podcast in which you were interviewed, and it sounded like you went to a great school, one that was very supportive. Where did you first encounter Shakespeare, and, and was it any good for you in those early days? I, um, I've forgotten this, but I used to do speech and drama. Oh, yes. Yep. I used to, mm-hmm. and, and we had a little drama group. And actually, when I was about 16, I played Moonshine. You did? Who I, yeah. Cause, and you're doing Moonshine in, in, in drama? Yes. Yeah. So I'm just returning to the role. Huh. Uh, we did the play within a play. We just did uh-huh. Pyramus the play. Pyramus and Thisbe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, a, in a drama competition. And it was... I had such a wonderful time because I only had, you know, like a few lines uh-huh. and uh, being able to kind of be with – everyone was older as well in the group and right. so I just got to kind of slot in and um, it was wonderful. And then we did – I think we did Hamlet in year 12 English but I didn't read it. Right. Right. I did not read the play. Okay. But I think I did very well on the essay and that okay. <laughs> that is a fundamental flaw in the Queensland education system. Um, I just didn't, I don't know, I didn't really connect didn't, with They it. didn't show you a video or, get, or even get you to stand up and read bits out loud? I think I saw Kenneth Branagh being a bit weird. Oh, okay. Yeah, yep, I think, yep. I think mm-hmm. Kenneth Branagh yep. was getting a bit freaky um, <laughs> and I found it quite strange. So they never at any point got you to read bits out loud, stand up, stand on your feet, perform Shakespeare in an English classroom? Not that I can, not that I remember. I don't mm. remember it kind of... In cre- making a massive impression on me. Mm. I know I don't, I th- and I think that's the problem, is it? Because you've got like an English teacher up the front, just kind of saying, and then he says this, and then you mm. know, it's. Mm. Mm. 
And then the next time I had to do Shakespeare was when I was auditioning to get into NIDA. Oh, and I yes. Was okay. Just, what was your piece? What did you do? I think he left no ring with her. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And Violet. I was yep. I was kind of terrified by it. And then, and you know, I was really young when I was auditioning and my mum kind of got me to do it. I thought it was ridiculous mm-hmm. to even audition. Um, and then when I got a call back, I was like, what has what's gone on here? There's been a mistake. <laughs> and then I walked into the callback and and it was this really lovely actor, uh, but I can't remember her name. She was on the audition panel and, and mm. she said, so Kevin's told me that I have to see your, your Viola. And I was like, it's mine? It's become mine? <laughs> How wonderful. <laughs> well, that was it. That was quick and great. Wonderful. <laughs> Who Kevin? Kevin Jackson, Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. So he so Kevin was on the audition panel when you were there. Yes, yes, it was in Brisbane, and mm-hmm. I um I think it was the best kind of circumstance. I had food poisoning <laughs> on the day of my audition, <laughs> so I did not want to be there. I yeah. I had no interest in being there, and that really worked in my favour. I think. Mm. So at NIDA, which mm. uh, which Shakespeare's did you do? What did we you did do there? Pericles. Oh boy, that's tough. Okay, yeah. Who who directed that? Tony Tony Knight. No, it was Gail Edwards. Okay, wow. Yes, okay. and I, mm-hmm. I very much enjoyed um, working with her, and I was Taser and the board. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh boy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So okay. they were they were great, but again, it did not make me fall in love. So then, what? So. Have you fallen in love, or wh- how would you how would you rate your relationship with Shakespeare currently? What, what's your relationship status? I've swiped right. Okay. okay. Do you know what we're courting? I, I, we're I, doing I... some texting. <laughs> no, I am. You know, I've listened to a few episodes of this show, and I very much get the love for Shakespeare. You know, it sounds like people are in a very committed, monogamous marriage <laughs> with Shakespeare on this, yeah. and it's beautiful. It's beautiful to see that relationship thorough, like flourishing. Um. I am. I think he's got some great lines. Sure. You know, I'm loving it. I sure. Do you know in rehearsals, I I kind of um, I faltered on a line and and I just kind of I called for line and I don't usually do that, mm-hmm. and and Mar- and Marie fed it fed it through to me and I said, oh, is that it? Oh gosh, not his best, is it? Bit mundane. <laughs> and and I just saw a wave come across the row of creatives sitting this hurt. <laughs> Like, like I think I think it's like I just told Pete that Santa wasn't real. Like, okay. <laughs> like Pete, I saw a little bit of Pete die that yeah, day. Okay. Um, anyway, I learnt very quickly. Don't call Shakespeare mundane in the Bell Shakespeare room. Like, hey, not look. I'm sure it's fine. They're, they're, you know what? I mean, the thing is, at Bell Shakespeare, there's not really a reverence. Uh, I think no. there's a, certainly a respect for Shakespeare, but uh, I, w- I would say that there are certainly lines that we look at and go, hmm, okay, well, <laughs> yeah, he, he's done better. No, and I, that's I, lovely because right. I've not done – I don't have much experience with Shakespeare and I'm not usually nervous when I walk into a rehearsal room. Mm. I've been doing it for a little while now. I can't tell you how nervous I was work, yeah, right. walking into the first day of this. Yeah, really? Yeah. Oh, Jane Montgomery Griffiths, of course, you know, years <laughs> years of experience, professor. Uh, but, of course, they, they were also loving and welcoming, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's because 
when my husband dropped me off and I was like, gosh, I hope I make it through the day. Gosh, I, <laughs> if I could just make it through the first day, maybe it'll be okay. But it has been it's such a great way to kind of go, you know, bite into Shakespeare properly um, mm, because mm. everyone is so supportive and yeah. it's completely understanding. But, Gab, you've been bouncing around between Australia and London. I mean, obviously not in the last couple of years, but <laughs> but you, you've been living over there for mm. a while. What has been happening in London? You've been making your own work. Have you been seeing a lot of theatre, encountering Shakespeare there as well? What's been happening? It's been great. You know, we moved over because my husband got a job there and I can live and work there, so why not? But what it's really made me do because... I think I've been really lucky since I graduated drama school here. You know, I've been given great roles, great. That does not happen in London. No one knows who I am over there. So Mm. it has forced me to make my own work, which I never thought that I would do, but I'm writing, I'm getting stuff up. The other thing that is quite different in London is you can get money for creating stuff. Yeah, right. Their arts council is like, do you want some money? We will give you some. Yeah, there are grants. If you have an idea... Mm-hmm. We will make that happen. I don't think that happens in Australia. There's no fin- there's not much of a financial incentive to actually make original ideas happen. Does, yeah. That for sounds so- terribly yeah, for so- harsh. Well, for solo artists and for small and medium companies, absolutely, there's less opportunities, for sure, for sure. Yeah, and I think that what that does... I don't want to sound like Melissa George. You know how she said that terrible line of, I'd much prefer to be in Paris with the latte. But I I think that what can happen sometimes as Australia is it doesn't really make you an autonomous artist because Mm. there is no benefit to putting yourself out there and creating something because you still got to pay your rent and you can't do that on an indie theatre salary. You just Mm. can't. But I've been amazed at when I have an idea now in England, I go, oh, and actually I could probably get that into that theatre and then I could do a workshop with these guys and then that would kind of tie together this great application and then that will be my salary for this year, Mm, mm, do you know? mm. And so there's a real motivation Mm. to kind of really think quite deeply on any idea that you might have because you can go, I could probably make this be my job this year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you did a lot of independent work there in London. Did you go and audition for all the big theatres and the major theatres and do all of that stuff as well? Not one. No? Not one. Okay. By the time I kind of got shows up, because I was coming home and working mm. in between to kind of keep me going, um, by the time I did get my one-woman show up and I had the companies come and see it, then COVID happened. So, yeah, yeah so, of course. Yeah, and that was it. So yeah. that was kind of a conversation um, stopper. But So the pair of you are planning to head back as soon as all this is over? I have a play that we're developing over there with the British Arts Council, so I have to, I definitely have to go back yeah. um, and do the development for that. Now, Gab, during COVID, you started your own podcast, uh, and I can relate. You know, i I, I got to tell you, I... <laughs> 
I, I know nothing about podcasts. I've, I've never listened to a podcast uh, until Deb Reinecke, uh, our marketing chief, said to me, you know, it's COVID, start a podcast. And, and so, <laughs> so, we did, so we did. Um, what, what is the appeal of the podcast? Why are people listening to this niche material? What, what's going on here? Well, I think, you know, there's that question of um, if you had access to an invisibility coat, would you would you take it? And nine times out of ten, humans are going to say, "Yeah, I want a I want an invisibility cloak." I think it's like that. You get this invisibility cloak to go into a very intimate conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one. It's different to radio because it's not censored in the same way. Yeah. And yeah. also, it's podcasts are kind of like the internet. I think you said it. They're incredibly niche. Mm. So. Mm you can find something that will directly speak to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. a- and it can have this kind of minute focus, mm. which is so impactful and meaningful if you're the person that needs to hear it. Gotcha, yep. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's why they're so successful. And, and you know, there's long form, short form. Mm. You know, the podcast that I listened to was, a, of course, it was This American Life. Yep. And it was about, you know, gang life in Chicago and how that infiltrates schools. And it was like mm. this four-parter that just mm. absolutely wrapped itself around my face, you yeah, know, right, and I couldn't, right. you know, and you can knit. You can knit while you're listening. <laughs> okay. You can do two things at once. People love doing multitasking. All right. Okay. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll take that under advisement. I'll, I'll go and find some. <laughs> now, I just listened to the episode of your podcast in which – you flip the tables and you are interviewed by the wonderful Matt Backer about your own experience in reality TV. Now, your podcast is all about people who have survived reality TV and come out the other end. And your experience in a, a TV program horribly titled Fresh Meat about trying to find a new host for a, a, a music video program on, on Channel V... Was was horrifying to me. I, I couldn't believe it. The, the you were only seventeen years old. You entered into this this world that you were definitely not equipped to enter into, and were just kind of left hanging at the end when you didn't win the the show and kind of dumped, put on a plane back to Queensland, and and that was it. And you talk a lot about mental health, your own mental health. Uh, you talk very openly about that. And I'm sure this is something that is very dear to your heart, performers' mental health, and especially in the last couple of years when work has been scarce, what can performers do to heal themselves, to look after themselves, to give themselves the care that they need? That's, I I wish I knew the right answer to that question. Um, I think... What I always kind of try to keep in focus is you need to make your life bigger than that room, whether that be the audition room or the rehearsal room or your dressing room. Your life needs to be a lot bigger and based on a lot more than your job. Mm. Um, What I think is very difficult in the performing world, creative world generally, is that your job is incredibly personal. Mm. And so Mm. a lot of your intrinsic kind of value as a person is attributed to what you do. Right. And mm. I think that as many things that you can do to separate yourself from that and not get your value as a person yeah. from acting or writing or directing or lighting mm. or um, 
you have to try and do. So look at something green, eat some green vegetables, go for a walk, mm-hmm. read mm-hmm. a bunch, you know. You just need to make your life bigger mm. than what you do. And I think that sometimes, you know, we're working strange hours. We're we're putting our head into trauma. Like you know, a lot of a lot of our work is dealing with trauma. Yeah. So you need yeah. to separate yourself from it as much as possible. And do you have ways that you kind of de-roll at the end of a night or that you just kind of shake the character off and become Gab again? Do you know, I've been asked that question quite a bit and I used to have this like really funny answers of like, yeah, I just watch shit television and um, not that funny actually when I repeat it, not that good an answer. Um, but I don't know and I'm actually really working on that. I'm, I'm seeing someone and, um, you know, because you're – you especially with some of the roles that I've been lucky enough to play, they're, they're incredibly traumatic. And mm. Mm. and while, you know, I kind of say, oh, I'm not a method actor, you know, I always know it's me, my body doesn't know it's not mm. me. Mm. And um, I started to realise after a, a couple of really full-on shows, like, oh, why am I feeling incredibly anxious mm. when I'm not on stage or mm. when I'm not doing it? And then, mm. you know, and um, I think a lot of that stuff stays in your body. And so... Yeah. Yeah. I'm working out how to de-roll now. Yeah. I, I don't know how. Um, so, I mean, the advice of just, oh, come on, just shake it off. It's just acting. That's not good enough anymore, right? Oh, I don't know. I, mm. I think that's ridiculous. I think that that's someone who's never acted in their life you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> saying yeah. that. I Do you know what? I do, um, I'm a very tactile person, mm-hmm. so I hug people a lot. Yep. And I think that actually I'm probably doing that to calm my body down. Because, you know, I hug my mum all the time if my mm-hmm. husband's around, uh, you know. And I think that that's nice. That's a mm. way of kind of connecting with someone else and, and um, coming into the real world and not the world that you've left on stage. What really uh, terrified me about that uh, podcast episode you recorded was how young you were and the lack of support around you, I think. I mean, obviously, you had your parents when you went back home, but the way that you were playing over and over again in your head, maybe if I did something differently, maybe if I'd just been this, maybe if I'd just been that, I would have got the gig. What's your advice to actors who have to deal with rejection a lot? So I think on the rejection front, the law of probability helps. So Every single no that you get is going to amount to a yes. So think of every Mm -hmm. no as like, great, this is one step closer to it being a yes at some point in time. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually started a board with my husband because I was getting so many no's at one point. He said, let's start a board. You get a gold star every time you get a no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which was weirdly helped. But I think, I think, again, it's if you make your world bigger than that room, you're not mm. as beholden to what happens in that room. Mm. So if you're writing, if you are starting a baking business, if you have some kind of meaningful side hustle yes. that can sustain you, mm. I think that that's a wonderful thing yeah. to do. And also, do you know what? It's the nature of this business. We are not owed anything in this world. And I think that's really difficult as privileged people to come to terms with. You are not owed anything from this world. And every yes that you get, every job that you get is an incredible privilege. And you're not owed that. 
You mm. haven't earned it. You haven't even earned it a lot of the time. Sure. You you were just the right person on the right day. Yeah. And you have to think that you're incredibly lucky every opportunity that you get, I think. Gab, you've been an incredibly generous guest. Thank you. But just before we go, mm. we've got the final five. It's five quick questions. I need five quick answers. Yes. Uh, here we go. Number one, which do you prefer, the lover, the villain or the fool? All three um, in the one yep. role, preferably, yeah, uh, but the villain. <laughs> what is your most underrated Shakespeare play? I'm really going to show my hand here because I don't know. Yeah. Uh, do you know what I'm going to say? The Winter's Tale, I think that it yeah, has yeah. a lot yeah. more possibity, especially mm. to speak to what's happening right now with our insurmountable problems with domestic violence in Australia. I think, yeah. I think that there's a lot more scope yeah. to investigate that play. No doubt. Who is your favourite artist you'd love to work with who you haven't worked with before? Evo Van Hove. Oh, wow. Sure. I, <laughs> nice. I would just okay. love to be pummeled by that man. Yeah. I yeah. would love just to, yeah. Awesome. What is the dream Shakespeare role you'd love to play? <gasps> okay. So um, I was talking to my husband about this and, and there are two answers. There's the right one and the wrong one. <laughs> and... Um, the one that I will say is Catherine. I've had a few, I've had a few directors say that I could uh, that I have a Catherine in me. Okay. Um, okay. Taming of the Shrew, and this is the answer that that Hugh said. Do not say that no, on the no, podcast. <laughs> I ideally, my dream role right now is a spear carrier, or Why? a role. Yep, yeah, a Why? role that has like six lines. Really? Yes. Why? Because you want to upstage. No, <laughs> no, because I'm so new to Shakespeare and I would just love it. So it's a role that has six lines but is mm. on stage like the whole time okay. because I would just love to be able, without the pressure of having to, you know, carry a show, mm. I would love to be able to just watch amazing actors, as Belle always gets, you know, or whatever company it's with, and just watch them work and see mm. how the mm. audience receives it and then, you know, just work out this world yeah. from that point of view. Totally. I, I, know, I actually know what you mean. I, I played a very small role in a Belvoir show years ago and Rob Menzies was the lead oh. and I got to watch him work. Just I just got to be quiet on stage and watch him work every night and it was a masterclass. It was absolutely amazing. So I, I totally get that. I really do. That's awesome. Gab, if you weren't an actor... What would you be doing? I, I, do you know? I didn't write something down. Um, white collar crime. Do you know what? Like, <laughs> like I'm incredibly aspirational, so I'm going to okay. say white collar crime. I'd mm -hmm. probably be selling things that people don't need. Yeah. You know, and mm -hmm. like insider trading and stuff right. like that. Okay. Like, okay. Yeah. So living the high life until it all came crashing down. Wait. Well, yeah. yeah. I was doing this. My, another side hustle job. I was doing banking in London. <laughs> As you do okay. for a yeah. bit. And we mm. had this training on insider trading. And wow. I was like, I'm so sorry. I thought that was business. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I I believed that that is how you get ahead in business. Yeah. I'm so <laughs> I didn't know so, that yeah. was illegal. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. I would be doing white collar crime. Gab, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for joining me today on Speak the Speech. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. Bell Shakespeare is Australia's national Shakespeare company. We perform in theatres and schools in every state and territory. 
If you'd like to support our work or to learn more about what we do, please visit bellshakespeare.com.au. Speak the Speech is produced by Bell Shakespeare and edited by Camillo Zanoni. Be sure to follow at Bell Shakespeare on social media and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the Speak the Speech podcast through your listening platform.